Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. All right, we are going to continue with our studies, uh, which is a series entitled All About Jesus. Uh, we are in part five. We're going to talk about the resurrection of Christ, resurrection of Christ. And so uh, lots of information to cover. So um, we're going to start with the time of prayer, quick time of prayer. So Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for all the material we're going to get a chance to cover tonight. And we continue our worship with you. Lord, uh, you want us to love you with all our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. And so we just want to draw near, nearer to you, Lord, and just um, become the people you want us to be. And so we desire to become more equipped. We desire to know more about you, not just intellectually, but by experience, we want to know you more. We want to know you better. And so I pray over your people. I pray over myself that we all will have open and receptive hearts to receive your word and to allow your Holy Spirit to work in and through us as you will, Father. And I do pray for the gift of teaching. I pray that I will get out of the way and allow your Holy Spirit to um, do whatever you will, Lord. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So part five, the resurrection of Christ. So in our last study, uh, we talked about the works of Christ up until his death. And today, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Christ. But before we talk about the resurrection of Christ, um, we need to touch on what Christ was doing after his death and before the resurrection. And so since this isn't uh, the main part of the study, I I do want to um, move quickly, but not too quick to where um, you're not understanding anything that's coming out of my mouth. And so we're going to talk about Uh, Real quick, the intermediate state of Christ. So once again, this is after his death and before the resurrection. And so here's the question. Where did Christ go during the three days while his body was in the tomb? Where, Where did his soul go and what did he do? Well, there's two main views. One view is that Jesus's soul went to a place called Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side, in other words, paradise, and that his body went to the grave. And then after three days, he led captivity captive, led them to heaven. Uh, This view suggests that there were two compartments or areas in a place called Hades, at least at one point. Uh, The second view is that his soul, Jesus's soul, simply went to heaven and his body went to the grave, and then his soul and spirit, soul or spirit, and his body came back together at the resurrection. And so, with this view, there's no two compartments of Hades, and and those two main views that I share with you are actually split fifty-fifty in Calvary Chapel. And so, um, I happen to take uh, the first view that Jesus' soul went to Abraham's bosom or side, which is also called paradise, at least at that time. And so during that time, his body went to the grave. After three days, he led captivity captive, led them to heaven. 
And yes, I do believe that at one point prior to Jesus's death, burial and resurrection, um, Hades had two compartments. And so um, part of where I get that information is from Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 19 through 31, uh, where Jesus told the story about a beggar named Lazarus and a rich man. And both of them in that story died. Um, And so when Lazarus died, when the beggar died, he was carried to Abraham's bosom. He was carried to paradise. And then the story, as it goes, uh, says that the rich man also died and he was buried and he was in the torments side of Hades. Um, In the King James, Hades is translated as hell. But when you read some of the um, newer versions like the New King James Version and so forth, Um, you'll see that it's translated Hades. And so that's more of the Greek, whereas in the Hebrew is Sheol, but it's still talking about the realm of the dead. So Hades, Sheol is talking about the realm of the dead, the place of departed souls or spirits. And and like I said, I believe at one point before Jesus's death, burial, resurrection and ascension, that it was two compartments. One compartment was Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort, rest, peace, paradise, and then the other part was a place of torments. And again, since I don't have it on the screen there, um, I get that information and and I infer this information based on what I see um, in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And I believe that, by the way, the story Jesus told about the beggar, Lazarus, and the rich man, I don't believe that's a parable because Jesus never used proper names in parables, but here he used Lazarus. So I believe this is a real story that he's sharing. And so there are some observations that I can share about Hades and the two areas that existed before uh, Jesus's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, One thing I can... um, pull from this is that the righteous and the unrighteous went to the same place, Hades, but different, like I said, different areas. Um, And the different areas or the amount of areas, it it seems, were two because it, it shares that Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. He didn't seem to be suffering. He wasn't in torments. Well, he once again was in the place of comfort, place of rest, place of peace, a place of joy. But on the other hand, you see, as you read the text in Luke chapter 16, you can see uh, that this rich man who had this great life when he was alive and didn't share his food with the beggar Lazarus, uh, you see that this rich man is in torments. In fact, he's hot, he's thirsty. um, He's even begging just for a drop of water. And so you can see that he's able to see Lazarus and, and, and Abraham from afar off. They were able to even communicate with each other. But then another observation I see um, in that text is that there was this great gulf between the two sections, between Abraham's bosom and this place of torments in Hades, a great gulf. Therefore, that rich man couldn't pass over that gulf and go to Abraham and Lazarus, and they couldn't come over to him to give him that drop of water that he was begging for. And so I see this great gulf. There was this separation at one point. And and also based on Matthew uh, chapter 12, verse 30, 
Uh, one thing I noticed about this is that, when speaking of uh, Hades or Sheol, is that it was located in the center of the earth. Matthew twelve forty says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so um, I believe that Hades or Sheol is located somewhere in the center or heart of the earth. And so that's, that's just one text um, that I can use and, and, and just glean from. And so in regard to Jesus now and um, what he did between his death and resurrection, uh, one thing that, that I can see that he did is, is that he preached. But to whom did Jesus preach between that time period between his death and resurrection? And so I pull up First Peter chapter 3. Now look at verses 18 through 20. And it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Of course, Jesus is just. We are not. So we're the unjust. So he died in our place. We talked about that in the last study. That he might bring us to God, speaking of God the Father, being put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. And so one interpretation we can rule out as we look at verse 19 and 1 Peter chapter 3 where it says, um, he went and preached to the spirits in prison, is that it does not mean that believers or unbelievers will have a second chance to be saved after they die. That is not what it means. And I know that because of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, it says, And as it is appointed for men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So it is appointed for men to die once. But after this, the judgment. So there is no second chance after a person um, dies in unbelief. So I can rule out that interpretation. How can I do that? Because another scripture in the inspired word of God cleared it up. That's why it's important to read through the entire Bible so you can get sound doctrine, sound uh, theology. And also, um, I don't think the apostles and the other Christians would have preached the gospel so hard with a sense of urgency. Even Jesus wouldn't have preached uh, about the kingdom of God being near or being at hand with such urgency if people can have another chance after they die. And unbelief. And so that's another piece of evidence um, that, that I can point to that, okay, we, we can rule out that interpretation. Jesus is not giving people another chance after they die. Uh, but just to get back to our main text, so we can try to narrow down what this means, uh, back in 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20, once again, focusing on verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirit in prison. And so here's another view now that we ruled out that first one. 
people don't get another chance after death. So here's another view that, that Jesus through the spirit preached through Noah to the disobedient who are now in prison. So obviously that would have been done during the time of the construction of the ark that Jesus through the spirit uh, would have used Noah as a vessel to preach. So that's one view that some people have. Um, another view is that Jesus, through the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, preached to lost souls. Now, these are those who rejected Noah's preaching while they were still alive. And this preaching, by the way, once again, we got rid of that other view that is not giving them a second chance after death. But this preaching was the announcement of his triumph on the cross. It was a, he was announcing his victory that, that he won on the cross, which sealed the fate of those who were on the torment side of Hades, the realm of the dead. Uh, another view of what this could mean as far as we preach to is that Jesus proclaimed victory over demonic spirits. Jesus proclaimed victory over demonic spirits. And here is another view. Uh, fourth one, or you can say number five, if you count the invalid one we pointed out, is that Jesus preached to people who had died, proclaiming his salvation to the Old Testament believers in preparation of them going to heaven, of him leading them to heaven. So in this view, he's preaching to those in the Abraham bosom side, in the paradise side, before he led captivity captive. He led them to heaven. And so that's another view. And another view, um, this is view number five, or like I said, view number six, if you count the first invalid one. Um, it could be a combination of some or all of these. Okay, so you do your studies and, and you, you know, pray about it and pull it all together. And so it could be a combination of all of these except for the first one, that, that people are getting a second chance after death. And so that's, that's one thing he did uh, between the period of his death and resurrection. He preached to the spirits uh, in prison. But another thing he did was lead captivity captive from Hades. That is from the Abraham bosom side, the, the, the place of comfort side of Hades. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 8 through 10, um, these are another set of verses that um, different Bible scholars have um, different interpretations of, but I'll go ahead and read it. Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 10, it says, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And that's a quote from Psalm 68, verse 18, if you're interested. And I continue in verse 9, it says, Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, one view, there are some Bible teachers who point out that the lower parts could just be simply could simply just be talking about this world. In other words, they say that it, they believe that it's a reference to his incarnation. So the lower parts of the earth just mean that that God, the son, 
Jesus, the son of God, became a man. Just speaking of his incarnation, came to the earth. And it doesn't necessarily refer to the location after his death. So that is one view. And Psalm 139 verse 15 is actually one verse that they use, um, you know, to support this view. But when I look at Psalm 139 verse 15, and I look at the phrase in the lowest parts, uh, figuratively, it refers to uh, a pit or the womb. And in verse, and in the, uh, verse 9 in Ephesians chapter 4, um, when I looked at the Greek word lower, um, it, it says that it means inferior, and it says locally of Hades. And that's according to Strong's definitions, and I use blueletterbible.org so you can research it yourself. And I also looked up Vine's expository dictionary um, to kind of, you know, figure out the meaning of um, the lower parts of the earth. And so according to Vine's expository dictionary, two of the various interpretations of this verse regarding Christ's descent into the lower parts of the earth are, number one, that the earth is in view in contrast to heaven. And I shared that point before. That's what some Bible scholars uh, believe and teach. And the second view um, is that uh, it's speaking of the region um, that is in Hades, speaking of the region of Hades or Sheol of the New Testament. And it says, inasmuch as the passage is describing the effects, not merely of the incarnation, but of the death and resurrection of Christ, then the second interpretation is to be accepted. In other words, as long as it's talking about the death and resurrection of Christ, then it says you can interpret it to mean um, Hades. You know, that's what lower parts of the earth means. And so um, that, that's the direction um, I lean personally. And so um, getting back to verse 8, now we're going to touch on, up, on that part about Jesus leading captivity captive. Now, when he led captivity captive, um, what's being shown is some type of picture of a military conqueror or maybe a Roman general who was leading his captives and, and sharing the gifts. And in this case, in context, we're talking about spiritual gifts in Ephesians chapter four, verse eight. So he's sharing those spiritual gifts with his followers. However, you know what we see here? We see that captives, they're not his enemies, um, but they're Old Testament believers. And so sinners who were once held captives by sin and Satan have now been taken captive by Christ to heaven. And so he's leading captivity captive. Those who were on the Abraham bosom side, the paradise side, the comfort side of Hades. Remember the two compartments, um, the the view I hold. Um, He's leading them captive. He's taking them to heaven. Okay, so uh, that's that's the view. You know, I share, but one thing I do know, because some people may believe this or may have taught this. Uh, some people say that Jesus went to Hades or, or hell in order to be tormented. Um, that, that's not what I see in the scriptures. And I think they get that because in the King James Version, it translates um, Hades as hell. I think that's where they get that. So they think that he's being uh, tormented, but he's not. We just saw a couple of things that he did. He, he preached. Uh, to the spirits there, um, you know, whether it's human or, um, 
demonic spirits, but he was preaching a, a message of his victory that he won on the cross. And then, of course, we saw he led captivity captive. Those are two main things that I see him doing. I don't see him being tormented. I don't think that's scriptural. I don't think that's according to the Bible. So that's something I want to rule out that he that he went to Hades to be tormented. I, I rule that view out. And one reason I view that out, another reason I should say, because I just gave you a couple, is that I'm not sure if you remember when he was talking to the thief on the cross, what did he tell the thief? Did he say, this day you're going to be with me in a place of torments? Or, do, or did he say, no, today you're going to be with me in paradise, right? That's what he said. So I don't believe he was in hell suffering. I think he went to, uh, I believe he went to Hades uh, to do what we shared um, earlier in this lesson. And so based on uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, as we move forward, we see that Hades or Sheol is a temporary holding tank. And so right now, since Jesus emptied the Abraham bosom side of Hades, it is only a place of torment. Only unbelievers go to Hades at this point, this place of torment. Some people, um, you know, still refer to it as hell. You see, believers, after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, we go immediately into the presence of, of God. So if you, have, uh, you had a loved one who was in Christ when they died, they are in the presence of God. Second um, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 supports this. It says, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So there's no more two compartments in Hades. Remember, Jesus emptied the paradise side, the Abraham bosom side of it, led captivity captive. They're in the presence of the Father now. They're in his presence now. So everybody, every believer goes to be with the Lord when they die. But the unbelieving souls, those dead souls will be held there until the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20:13. I mentioned it early, earlier. Now we'll take a look at it. Revelation 20:13. It says the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his work. And so I, I believe when he's mentioning death and Hades, it's a reference to the body and soul. So death speaking of the body and Hades speaking of the, the souls of the people who died in unbelief, they were delivered up. It says, and they were judged each one according to his works. So since each one are being judged according to their works, does that mean they get a second chance at salvation? No, um, they, they came from Hades. They were in county jail, so to speak, and they are about to go to prison, which is the lake of fire. And so they're being judged according to their works to determine the degree of hell that they would that they're going to experience. And so what determines the degree of hell? Well, the scripture says that the more, you know, the more you're responsible for. You know, Jesus teaches that the servant who knew to do good but didn't do it will be beaten with many stripes. And so you see that the more you know, the more you're responsible for. So they'll be judged, each one according to their works. 
to determine the degree of hell, the degree of torments they'll experience. And so here, to get back to the point, we see that Hades or Sheol will be cast into the lake of fire. And so that's why I say that Hades right now is like county jail. It's a temporary holding place for the unbelieving souls. It's a place of torment. Um, Revelation 20 verses 14 and 15 says, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. There you go. It's cast into Gehenna. Uh, This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so Hades technically is not hell. Um, Some people call it hell. You know, we're not going to, they're not heretics or anything. That's fine. Uh, But it is a place of torment. It's it's the, like I said, temporary holding place of the unbelieving souls, um, those people who died. So technically, it's not hell that Jesus was, was talking about. It's not the lake of fire that Jesus was talking about. See, the lake of fire, and you heard me say this, is Gehenna. And Gehenna is a Greek word, and it was borrowed from the Hebrew language. And Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 43 and 44, for example, Jesus spoke of hell. He spoke of Gehenna, if you look behind the word hell that Jesus uses. And um, this is, once again, a Greek translation of the Hebrew, Valley of Hinnom. So Gehenna comes from Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was a literal place, and it was uh, located outside of Jerusalem's wall. And so this is where they would practice Molech worship and human sacrifice. They sacrificed their children uh, to these idol gods. Sort of like what people are still doing today when they going out there and they claim to be pro-choice and murdering these babies. The same thing, still sacrificing to demons. And so they, they were doing that here uh, as they practiced Molech version. They were doing that in the Valley of Hinnom. And again, that's where Gehenna, that word, comes from. But it was also a place where garbage, filth, and dead animals were burned. And so you always had the, this fire in this valley, in the valley of Hinnom. And so Gehenna, where these festering worms were, where the worms do not die, that the fires kept flaming, just smoldering, all this stuff, smoke and everything, burning up this garbage, this filth, dead animals, anything unclean. That, that painted an appropriate picture for the place where the wicked would spend eternity. And so Gehenna, Gehenna um, once again, if you look behind the word hell that Jesus uses, you'll see that word a lot. In fact, I looked up all the times that Jesus uses the word hell. And every single time it uses Gehenna, like in the ESV, the New King James Version, the New Living Translation, um, every time. Jesus uses hell. He's talking about Gehenna, and Gehenna is the lake of fire. That is the place of eternal torment that Hades is going to be cast into, that the false prophet, that the Antichrist, that Satan and his fallen angels are going to be cast into, and anyone not written in the book of life, they're going to be cast into. Anybody who's in the holding tank of Hades will be cast into. Even death is going to be cast into Gehenna, the lake of fire. That is, some people say, the final hell. That is the eternal place of torment. And so now that we know 
about Hades and Sheol and where, where Jesus spends some of his time or his time during, um, you know, the, the time between his death and resurrection and sort of what he did and, um, you know, kind of even got extra credit, um, little teaching there. You know, some of you probably don't even care to know it, but I felt I, I couldn't leave that part up, that part out about the eternal place of judgment. But but now we're able to move on to the resurrection. Now that we talked about the intermediate state of Christ. And one thing I want to point out is that when we talk about the resurrection, we're referring to the body. It is the body that's resurrected, not the soul, because the soul, the spirit does not die. Either goes to, to Hades, goes to hell, or is with the Lord. But it is the body that's died. It's the body that is resurrected. In Psalm um, 16, verses 8 through 10, this is a Psalm of David, by the way, and I'm going somewhere with this. Um, it says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. You will not leave my soul in the place or the realm of the dead, nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption. Now, what's interesting is that on the day of Pentecost, in Acts uh, chapter 2, uh, verses 25 through 32, Peter gets up and preaches. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and now he's preaching on the day of Pentecost. So in Acts chapter 2, beginning at the 25th verse, uh, Peter says, For David says concerning him, and so I read Psalm 16 first because you're going to see Peter quote that. And you're going to see that he's talking about Jesus now using those same verses in Psalm 16. So he says, Peter says, for David says concerning him, speaking of Jesus, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Hades. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And then Peter goes on to explain what this means. He goes on to explain what it means. What, what, he, what he quoted from Psalm chapter uh, 16 verses 8 through 10 or 8 through 11. He says, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. That he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, speaking of David, he was king and says here a prophet. And knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, speaking of David, foreseeing this, he spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. So here you see that this in Psalm chapter 16 verses 8 through 10 or 8 through 11 is actually a prophecy about the resurrection of Christ. And Peter is giving light to this. He said he's foreseeing this boat concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades. Remember his body's in the grave, but his soul was in Hades, the realm of the dead. He wasn't in the place of torment being tortured. 
Okay, we already talked about that. Nor did his flesh see corruption. That's talking about his body. This Jesus, God has raised up of whom we are all witnesses. So Jesus' body did not see corruption and his soul was not left in the realm of the dead. Why? Because God uh, raised him from the dead. Therefore, he had victory over death. He had victory over Hades. And so what are we going to do now? Let's look at the characteristics of the resurrection of Christ. As we talk about uh, the characteristics of the resurrection of Christ, the first thing we need to point out is that it was literal. The, the resurrection of Christ was literal. You can read John chapter 20. You can read other gospels, gospel accounts as well. But he actually rose from the grave. It was literal. Mary Magdalene, Peter, John, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, they all uh, visited Jesus' tomb and they did not see that body there. That angels uh, or the angel attested to it. Actually, there were a couple angels there attested to it. His body was not there. So he literally rose from the grave. And then number two, in talking about the characteristics of the resurrection of Christ, it was material. It was material. Luke chapter 24, verse 39 says, Behold my hands and my feet. Now, this is after he's resurrected. He's before his disciples, his followers. He said, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is mine myself. Handle me and see. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So he, this was no spiritual resurrection. This was a bodily resurrection. That This is... Uh, fundamental doctrine that Jesus bodily rose from the grave, the same body that went in a tomb came out, but slightly different. We'll talk about that. He says, the spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. As you see, I have handle me, see, touch me. And so it was material showed his disciples, the hands and the feet. In fact, he even ate the food. He ate the broiled fish. And I believe he also ate honeycomb after his resurrection. And so also getting back to our point about characteristics of um, Jesus's resurrection is that this is the same body that died. Like I said, there were some changes and we see that he didn't have to open doors. He could just appear, disappear, so forth. Um, Even I don't it was I don't know if there's some kind of filter over the people's eyes or if he just looked slightly different. I'm not sure, but people didn't recognize him right away. Um, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him right away. But it was the same body that died that came out of the tomb with some slight changes, able to do different things. Appear, disappear, like I said. But yet Jesus still had his scars. And his scars will likely remain. He even invited Thomas to look at the wounds in his hands, to touch my side where he was speared. That was wounded. And his scars, I believe, will remain for eternity. Not because he couldn't fix it, not because the father couldn't fix it, but 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 it's going to remain as a reminder of his love for us, of what he did for us. And so in short, in summary, with this point, this wasn't a change of body. It was a change in body. In other words, he didn't leave that body in the grave and then pick another body to inhabit. No, it was the same body. It wasn't a change of body, but it was a change in his body 
that he had at the incarnation. And Jesus continues to exist in his glorified body today. That's what he has, a glorified body. And so we're going to talk about the implications of that later, but there are some what you would call negative theories of the resurrection. And one of the negative theories is the swoon theory. So according to this theory, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. See, people want to wipe away miracles. People who don't want to believe, they want to get rid of miracles. So they say, according to this theory, he didn't actually die. He was swooned. He just fainted, was uh, feigned by death by some kind of drug-induced metabolism. Then they say Jesus is said to have later revived in the cool, damp tomb until he was strong enough to leave. But, but don't worry, there are problems with this swoon theory. And there are a few points, and I'll point them out to you. First of all, it fails to consider how physically messed up Jesus was. He had no sleep. He was beaten. He couldn't carry, even carry his own cross all the way to Golgotha or, Golgotha or Calvary. He couldn't even do that. They had to get some help from him. He was mocked and been nailed, lost a lot of blood, side pierced and so forth, hung on the cross from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. And so um, they, don't, they don't consider that people who hold this view. Also fails to consider that there were witnesses of his death. For example, the apostle John was there. You know, some ladies there, they, they seen him die. Some soldiers even checked to make sure he was dead. And so this theory doesn't consider that. And it also uh, doesn't consider the fact that there was or is non-Christian testimony by historians about Jesus's death, that he really died. And there's, you know, the Talmud, for example, that says on the eve of Passover, Yeshu was hanged. Josephus makes reference to Jesus being handed over to Pilate and later being condemned to the cross. The Roman historian Tacitus, he asserts that their originator Christ had been executed during Tiberius's reign, who was the governor of Judea. And so many people attest to his death. But then there's the hallucination theory. This theory says that those who reported seeing Jesus after his death were actually not seeing correctly, but they were just hallucinating. They just, wanted, they just saw what they wanted to see. This is another theory, of course, and like the other theory, this one has issues as well. That, that one has smaller print because there's a few more holes in this theory. But I'll try to read the main points to you is, This this theory fails to consider the abundant number of witnesses because hallucinations are normally private. But Jesus appeared to many people. So that that can't be a hallucination. It also fails to consider that hallucinations usually occur once and only last a few seconds, minutes, rarely hours. Whereas with Jesus, after his resurrection, he roamed the earth for 40 days, appearing to people, to his followers. This is no hallucination. He even had conversations. But then it also fails to consider that the disciples touched and ate with him. It fails to give an adequate answer for the empty tomb. How could that be if this is a hallucination? 
And if the apostles were hallucinating and spreading their story contrary to fact, all the Jewish and Roman authorities had to do was produce a body. Cut up, couldn't got rid of it. As a matter of fact, there would probably be no Christianity right now. If all they have to do is produce a body. 2,000 years later, where's the body? And then there's the conspiracy theory. According to this theory, either Jewish authorities uh, like the Roman, the Roman guards or the disciples conspire to steal the body of Jesus. In fact, that's even, you know, that lie is actually included in the Bible. But the problems with this theory are as follows. That if Jewish authorities stole the body, why didn't they charge the disciples with theft? How come they didn't prove, uh, produce the body? And then not only that, but the Roman guards, why, why would they take the body? Because if they, if they did, they, they, I mean, there could possibly be the death penalty against them because they didn't do their jobs in guarding the tomb. So it's unlikely that they would steal the body. But then this, this theory also portrays the disciples as schemers where we know from the scriptures that these apostles had high moral character. And then the fourth reason this doesn't fly, this theory doesn't fly, is that it doesn't account for the appearances of Christ over a span of 40 days to more than 500 people. But instead, what we have, instead of these crazy theories, instead what we have is evidence that the resurrection is true. We have plenty of them. One of them being is that the Christian church started to meet on the first day of the week. We meet on Sundays, the first day of the week, because that's the day of the resurrection. He was resurrected on the Sunday. First Corinthians 16, verse 2, you saw that they met on the first day of the week. Not only that, but there wouldn't be anything for the writers, the gospel writers to write about if Jesus were not resurrected. Wouldn't be nothing for Paul, led by the, empowered by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write about if Jesus were not resurrected. What other evidence is there? Of course, Jesus' body wasn't found. Not only that, but the religious leaders in the backhanded way, in an indirect way, proved that his body wasn't there because the religious leaders, according to Matthew chapter 28, they gave money to the soldiers and told them to lie and say, tell them that the disciples stole the body. Why would they have to lie if there was really a body there? And so another, that was another piece of evidence. The resurrection is true. But here's one. And women, do not get offended. This is not from me. This is how it was during that time. Um, a woman's testimony was included. Mary Magdalene's testimony, she went to the disciples, shared with them that Christ is alive, was included. How was that proof of the resurrection? Well, well that's proof that it really happened because in first century Judaism, according to J.P. Moreland, and not just him, but others have stated a woman's testimony was virtually worthless during that culture, during that time. A woman was not allowed to give testimony in a court of law except on rare occasions. And so no one would have invented a story and made women the first witness to the empty tomb. But why did they do that? They did it because it's true. There, was, there is really an empty tomb. A really a empty tomb, but also, and this is one of the biggest 
um, evidences of the resurrection of Christ, that it really happened, that it is true. And that is the transformed lives of the disciples. You see the transformed lives of Matthew, of, you know, the tax collector. You see Peter. You see the transformation in his life. You see the transformation in John the Apostle's life. At one point, he and his brother wanted to call down lightning on people. They wanted to call down fire on people because they rejected Jesus. But then when you read the letters that, um, that God, you know, put in the heart of um, John to write, when you read those letters, you see all of this love. God is love. God transformed him. Why? Because of the resurrection. There is a risen Christ. But another piece of evidence is when I look at the lives of other believers in this world who are living right now, we, 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 can, we know that we have experienced something different. We know that our lives are not the same. They're not the same as they used to be. And that's because there is a resurrected Christ, another proof that the resurrection is real. It really happened. But then, just want to share this with you. You could take, oh, that, yeah, that's a really small fountain right there. So may God help you. Take a picture of it, blow it up on your phone. You could, you could do like this and, and you could blow it up on, on most phones, right? So there were many witnesses to the resurrected Christ. And, and, and thank God for um, Josh McDowell. He put this in his book, Evidence for Christianity, pages 305, 306. So I copied this part from there. And so you can, you can, see, you can see all these people who witnessed the resurrected Christ. Mary Magdalene, the women returning from the tomb. Peter later on in that day, um, the Emmaus disciples and so on and so on. And, you know, here's another part there. I know you, sorry, you were expecting the font to get bigger. Sorry to disappoint. And so, you know, James, the 11 seeing Jesus and, you know, those who were with him at the ascension when he went back up to heaven, they, they've seen him. Paul, um, you know, Paul seen him. Steve, Stephen or Stephen, however you want to pronounce it, saw him. Paul in the temple saw him, Acts 22, and then John on the island of Patmos where, where God used him to write the book of Revelation. He saw the resurrected Christ dressed up in his gear, in glory, ready to judge. So he saw that picture of Christ, speaking of John on the island of Patmos. And so there are many witnesses to this resurrected Christ. So we have so much evidence. But then another piece of evidence besides or in addition to uh, the many witnesses who've seen him, is that when you read the Gospels, you see it being told from different perspectives. You know, they didn't just copy from each other. So you get the same information, put it all together, you have this giant puzzle. And so that's proof that they didn't lie. They, it's credible. It's like seeing a car accident. You know, you see it from different angles. You put the story together, you get the full picture. So you see that in the four gospel accounts. But then we have to ask this question when we talk about the proof of the resurrection. Do people die for what they know is a lie? You, you have some people who will die for what they believe is the truth. But you're not going to have a lot of sane people who, who will die for something they know is a lie. So if they knew if they knew that the resurrection was a lie, they, these, these apostles, many of them, they wouldn't have died. Many of them died horrible deaths. In fact, 
you know, the, the people who were alive during that time, those 500 witnesses who appeared at once, many of them were alive. They could have said, no, they're lying about that. But they didn't. Why? Because it is true. So the fact they didn't, they didn't just say, oh, I was, I was just lying about that. But instead they died for this truth, went to their grave with it. That, that's proof to me that they weren't lying about these gospel accounts. Amen. But as we near the end, we have to talk about the theological importance of the resurrection. And one theological importance of the resurrection is that it is proof that Jesus is God. The fact that he rose from the dead is proof that he is God. Going back to our first study in the series, he is God. But another theological importance of the resurrection is that it is assurance that God the Father accepted his work. So in other words, the resurrection is the receipt that the sins Jesus paid for has been accepted by the Father. That it is good. His sacrifice is good. So it's assurance that God accepted his work. And if God the Father didn't accept Jesus as a sacrifice, then he wouldn't have been raised from the dead. Simple as that. But here's the third, this is the third point with theological importance of the resurrection is that he is able to serve as our living high priest. See, first Timothy two, five says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so he's able to serve as our living high priest because of the resurrection. But it also is proof that he will judge one day as it tells us in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, 31, because of the resurrection, he is going to be judged. The father has given that duty to him. The resurrection supports that as proof that he will do that. He will judge. And then number five, his body serves as the pattern for our resurrected Bodies, future resurrected bodies or glorified bodies. So that's the theological importance of the resurrection of Christ. Shows us, gives us a pattern for what our bodies are going to be like. And you can read those verses there. Philippians 3 verses 20 and 21 and 1 John 3, 2. But then point number six, it's a picture of the Christian life. You see, we've been saved from a dead life, dead in sin. Spiritually speaking, we repented, changed our mind about sin, turned from that sin. We put our trust in Jesus for salvation. And now you have these people who had dead lives are now, you know, spiritually living. And so because of that, we ought to walk in the newness of life. Which also reminds me of the fact that if the resurrection was not real, then water baptism, you, you know, what kind of symbolism does that have? Because it's a picture of, first of all, it's when we get baptized in waters, we are identifying with Christ. We are identifying with his death, burial, and resurrection. 
So it's a picture of us. The dead, the dead us is gone. Now the new us should be walking in that newness of life. But none of that has meaning without the resurrection. But also in regard to the resurrection and its importance theologically, it is the heart of the gospel message. It is the heart of the gospel message. Remember what it says in Romans 10, 9. You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has what? Raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. It's the heart of the gospel message. That's important. But then because of the resurrection, point number eight, our faith is validated. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 14, it says, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. I'm wasting my time. Pastor Jim, Pastor Tony, Pastor Al, we'll wait. Anybody who preaches and teaches the word of God is we're wasting our time. If the resurrection isn't real, if Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty and your faith, it says, is also empty. But because he is resurrected, our faith is validated. And then point number nine. Because of the resurrection, we are not still in our sins. We are not in our sins. He paid the price for it. We are redeemed. See, we are not forgiven, nor are we justified or declared righteous or have a chance to be if he is not risen. But then point number 10, and this will be the final point as far as the theological importance of the resurrection of Christ is concerned is that we too will live for eternity because Jesus says in John 14 19 a little while longer and the world will see me no more but you will see me and he says because I live you will live also as the worship team takes the stage you you see our our bodies may deteriorate you know, different body parts that used to work well are not working as well as they used to. We just recently had a quarterback playing in his mid to late 40s. You know, Tom Brady doing well, but, but his body's breaking down. He just retired again. <laughs> Michael Jordan, my favorite basketball player of all time, he you know, would have loved to keep seeing him playing, but his body deteriorated and many of you who play sports or maybe doing other things some other professions you see that your bodies may not be working the way it used to or that it may take you a while to recover you you're in the gym you lifting those weights it feels really good but then the next day you can't even get out of bed and so you feel that the body's getting weaker is deteriorating your reflexes might not be so good you play wrestle, you play fight with your son, and, and all of a sudden, you, you think you can dodge the little play f- punches or whatever, and all of a sudden, you're getting hit. It's like, what's, what's going on? I used to be able to dodge these things. Reflexes may not be as good. Can't catch the way you used to. More clumsy. Wasn't as clumsy before. There's sickness. You may be suffering from some health issues. You some people have chemical imbalances that affect them in different ways. Maybe it affects their mood or maybe because of that, they're in a 
you know, it seems like a perpetual state of maybe depression or whatever the case may be. There's various issues that we suffer in this life. But thank God we have that hope in Christ because he says, because I live, you will live also. And this is the living hope that we have. This is that great expectation that we have that, that yes, things on this earth may be bad. Yes, things in your household may, may not be as good as you thought they should be. Your body may not feel the way it used to. But you have that great expectation that, hey, my Savior lives. And where he is, I'm going to be with him. Because he lives, I'm going to live too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for who you are and what you are to us. We thank you for the resurrection and we bless your name, Lord. May you bless your people. Keep them safe on their travels on the way back home. Use them in a mighty way this week. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.